0: Welcome to Kids Doc Now with Dr. Jenny. Today's guest is Dr. Anessa Donskoy talking about sleep. Dr. Donskoy is a pediatric sleep medicine physician at Advocate Children's Hospital in Illinois. She is also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Medicine. She completed her pediatric residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago and her sleep medicine fellowship at Northwestern University and Lurie Children's Hospital. Welcome to Kids Doc Talk with Dr. Jenny. Dr. Jenny is a board-certified pediatrician and is the director of telemedicine at Pediatric Associates. Hi, Dr. Donskoy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Dr. Berkovich. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. I'm excited to talk about sleep because I have spent a lot of time talking about this with you, um, and so I felt like it it really warranted um, a whole episode. So, um, as a general pediatrician and as a parent, like why is this even important for me to talk about? Why is it important for us to discuss sleep?
1: Yeah i mean this this is a question that has an answer in you know in science and in research and in evidence but the answer i think primarily comes with what we see day to day we intuitively can look at our child see their behavior, see how they're interacting with us, with their peers, with their siblings, and get a feel. And I'll often hear a parent even say, gosh, I think my my kid is, is overtired today. Or, oh man, he really, I'm so sorry, he really skipped his nap today, right? We, we understand what sleepiness looks like. And the data really supports it. You know, um, physiologically, there's a lot of changes that happen when we are sleep deprived or get an ins- insufficient amount of sleep. A cortisol levels are up, our stress levels are up. And um, We know that long term when we look at adults who are sleep deprived over long periods of time you know we have increased morbidity and mortality. So there are very real physical changes that happen when sleep is Poor or insufficient, but we know that psychologically also it takes a real toll. And with sleep deprivation, we see increased incidences of anxiety, depression, and even you know even before we get to those diagnoses, what we know based on beautiful like fMRI imaging studies um, and a lot of paper that has come out looking at acutely sleep deprived, even adolescents, is we sort of lose this connection between our emotions and the ability to kind of use our prefrontal cortex, pause, stop, process, and really think critically, even on a subconscious level of, is it appropriate to act on this emotion right now? And so we have this big mood lability that comes with insufficient or poor sleep and that's what we see playing out right really reactive um, externalizing behaviors and sometimes internalizing behaviors too right those low moods those anxious feelings they're harder to control and process when we get poor sleep um, so across the board right physically and psychologically
0: um, it's really important to get it and that's why that's why we're talking about it so that's, that's really fascinating. Actually, I, I think we'll probably get into some of that a little bit later on. But the burning question that I always get is, how much sleep should kids be getting? Because I think parents feel like this intense pressure of like, getting to and sticking to a bedtime and getting the kids up in the morning, but then like on the weekends, can, can can we let them sleep in? And is that okay? And this like obsession, I think almost like an obsession that parents have with, with bedtime. So walk me through this a little bit of what we expect kids to be getting at different, um, stages in life in terms of sleep length.
1: Yes, this is the hot button question. Um, it's both my favorite and least favorite answer to give. Um, so, there is this immense pressure, and I'm so glad you you described it. You described it so beautifully. Um, we're getting pressured. I'm a parent myself, but we're getting pressured from from every area to have everything be so perfect for our children, their nutrition, their extracurriculars, and their sleep, you know, is one of them for all the reasons that we just talked about it being important. And so people put a lot of pressure on this and a lot of stress on this, and they really try to get their kids to have good sleep. But the ironic thing about that is it's a little bit like holding sand in your hand, right? The the harder you hold, the more likely it is that it's not going to go well. Sleep is one of those things that, interestingly enough, you got to be really relaxed about, right? You have to be really calm and wound down and relaxed to even fall asleep yourself. Let alone do bedtime for a little cutie pie that's going to feed back from everything you're feeling in that moment. You're feeling stressed that your kid needs to go to sleep, you know, because you care about, you know, how they're doing, but also because you need to get things done as a parent. They're going to feel that energy, and bedtime is going to now become immensely more challenging because of it. So I think the first place to come at this is, um, reflecting on those emotions in yourself, right? And of course, it is important for our kids to have really great quality and a really appropriate quantity of sleep, but that can't be at the expense of really getting them less because we're going about it in a stressful way. Um, If we talk about like, numbers, there are a lot of different sources. So the National Sleep Foundation um, has a nice broken down table of ages um, from infant to adolescence of how many hours of sleep they recommend. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine has one as well. It doesn't uh, touch on infant sleep because if you've ever looked at the, I mean, you you have, you're a pediatrician, if a poor parent has ever looked at the ranges of sleep hours recommended for an infant, you know, it's, it's like basically zero to twenty four, right? Um so they 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 avoid that uh, because it is such a wide range, but they give go- good values too. And very recently, just last month, the American Heart Association also came out with um, some nice data tables of recommended ages um, and quantities of sleep, which is nice because that particular one actually is backed with some uh, research looking at how children do function especially psychologically especially in the school learning environment on certain hours of sleep Um, and that's really nice because all of the other not not all of the other data but a lot of the other data is really survey median data which doesn't serve us so well because it's not necessarily saying this is an optimal amount it's saying this is the average amount people get right and and your child should fall somewhere in here um so Those ranges are nice starting points, but again, really the most appropriate amount of sleep for your child is a quantity and a time frame where you're finding that your child's falling asleep easily, staying asleep, waking up on their own, feeling refreshed and able to get through their day and accomplish all of the things they need to. If all of those things are happening, then the amount of sleep that your child needs is the amount that they're currently getting.
0: So I think that's really critical for parents to hear because I find that people want to fixate on the numbers and then that adds extra stress to like, well, then if I have to get them right, that up for seven, right? Because the bus comes at whatever, 745, that means working backwards. This is what time I have to get them to go to sleep. And why are not they going to sleep? And oh my goodness, I mean, I need to get the <laughs> medicine. I'm doing something wrong. And now we're all stressed. and sounds like that's exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. Um so I I I'm very reassured hearing this but I also see a lot of parents who struggle with um, a consistent bedtime, not because anything has gone wrong, but what they report is like they just won't go to sleep, right? And they tell me about kids who it's 10 o'clock at night, and it's you know she's a six-year-old just wandering around the house, and she's just not sleepy. And they've done all the things, they've done the bath time and the quiet time and the bedtime and picking out the story and the second story, and like this kid isn't going to sleep, and the parents are desperate. What you probably see a lot more of this than I do. What's like a good approach for families to start addressing this type of situation?
1: Yes, I. this is my everyday patient. <laughs> I have several of these patients that I'm seeing later today. So it's, it's going to be very individualized, but in some ways systematic, right? So the first thing that you really want to understand about what's going on in this home is just sort of a start to finish all encompassing routine. Right. What parents often want to come and tell me is what they're doing at bedtime. Right. The bath, the book, the bottle, the book, you know, the second book. Um, And then and then we're sort of done. But I want to hear more. Right. I want to hear about, Okay. well, once they're in bed, when do they actually fall asleep? Are they staying asleep? If they're not staying asleep, when do they wake up and how long are they up for? Right. Because now that's detracted from how much sleep they've gotten. Um, When are they waking up? Uh, is that the same on a weekend versus a weekday? What are they doing throughout their day, right? Because don't forget to sleep well, right, to to have a really good night, you kind of need a good day, a good day of building a lot of sleep pressure, a lot of physical activity, a lot of sunlight, a lot of output, right? Um. So I want to hear about what their day looks like. And then I want to hear about if they're napping throughout the day right? Because don't forget, we only need a certain amount, talking about the quantity of sleep, we only need a certain amount of sleep within a 24-hour period. If you're paying off your sleep pressure at some point there in the day, that's less sleep that you're going to have at night as well, right? And the timing of that nap is pretty important too, even in the child that perhaps should still be napping for their age. So I want to hear about how that day goes, and I want to hear about the wind-down period, not just starting at bedtime, but starting at dinner, Right, and starting up what they're doing at dinner, because this will start to really inform me, right, about what's happening in the home, um, and every day is different, right? Every day is different, so I don't want just want to hear about what happened yesterday. Kind of want to hear about what's been happening usually over a course of about two weeks. About two weeks can give me an idea um, of what's what. What are the patterns that sort of continue to arise? Um, and parents don't have to come in to see me or anybody. They can sort of just track this on their own, right? There's some nice sleep logs out there. Um, the AASM has a nice one on their website, but you can just sort of jot this on yourself. Sometimes it's eye opening for the parents. To start recording and realizing when certain things are happening when. Because what the log will help them do and me do is sort of differentiate between, well, a a number of different things, right? One, the easiest one, is, is perhaps their days are sort of sedentary and perhaps they are napping in the daytime at an age which they shouldn't be, right? Those are sort of the easiest fixes. Push sleep into the night right? We don't have a sleep disorder here. We just have a little bit of, you know, broken sleep, sleep irregularity, however you want to describe it. Um, And we can kind of push our sleep pressure to make the nights go better. But you may also try to start to differentiate between what we call insomnia, right? Really this difficulty initiating and or maintaining sleep um, versus what's much more common, uh, which is a later circadian rhythm, a delayed sleep-wake phase right? That's sort of the idea of, you know, we all have a quantity of sleep we want, but we also have a window in which we want that sleep. Um, And that's controlled really, really tightly by a part of our brain um, called our suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's essentially our our internal clock um, that runs, whether we like it or not, um, with pretty close rigidity. And it so it it tells every part of our body when we are most likely to fall asleep, wake up, um, and a lot of other hormonal processes are run by it as well. Our cortisol, our growth hormone, um, so we um, we we're sort of under that control as well. And the log, especially a log that includes several weekends, where likely. There are less sort of things to do or things to wake up for, a log that sort of reveals that, okay, we may be falling asleep later, but gosh, we're, we're kind of sleeping in later as well on free days, right? That tells me that this is a kiddo with a little bit of a later time zone, later internal time zone, um, and, and we can change that. Right. We, we flip our time zones around twice a year when we have daily savings, if it sticks around. Uh, we, we change it when we travel. Right. So we have to know where we're starting and, and adjust from there. And largely that comes from shifting day off wake up times um, to kind of align them with the, the rest of the week. But you may see that, you know what, this this isn't a child that's sleeping in at all. In fact, um, this is a child that, that truly is having a difficulty starting to fall asleep um, and maybe even staying asleep as well. And then we and then we do a little bit more digging and figuring it out, right? What, what does the sort of entire wind down routine look like? How much light exposure? How much activity is there? Um, what are, you know... What are the things that are on this child's mind? This is a conversation you can have from a very, very early age, believe it or not. I think sometimes um, I've asked a parent, like, well, what are they thinking about at this time? Right. What are they doing at this time? Um, Because the kid's usually playing at this moment. Um, And they're like, I don't know. I I haven't asked. So so ask. Ask your two-year-old. Ask your three-year-old. What are you thinking about? What what are you what are you kind of dreaming about? Right? What are you imagining? Are you feeling physically uncomfortable at all? Right? Because sometimes especially in the toddler age sort of there's this this magic uh Diet pickiness that can arrive sometimes, lead to some macronutrient deficiencies. All of a sudden, you got a little bit of a restless picture, right? Which is also a pretty easy fix. Um, or is this or is this something that's that's really on their mind, right? We as adults um, can get stressed, and that can make it difficult to fall asleep, right? And stress is both positive and negative. You can be stressed out because something really tough is happening. Or you can have something really exciting coming up. Gosh, and you just want to think about it and imagine it and kind of daydream about it. And that can make it hard to fall asleep too, right? And so talk with your child. Talk about what they're thinking. Talk about what's going on. Um, And if you're finding or discovering that it is sometimes negative thoughts, right, then um, one of the things that you can start to do is give them a, a place to put those thoughts that's maybe not at night, maybe earlier in the day. Maybe you schedule a schmooze time, like a scheduled, like I call it like scheduled worry time, scheduled processing time earlier in the day, right? Because you need a place to put those thoughts. You do. They're not just going to go away because you will them uh, or avoid them. So give them a place to go that's not bedtime. Um, and then as you as you continue to work on the bedtime prep, right, you, you want to start to be really mindful about bed timing. Um, And so this is where it is really important to take all your knowledge about how many hours of sleep your child needs, and and throw them out the window temporarily, hang them out the window with like a rope to, to bring it back later. Right? If your child is having a challenging time falling asleep, and you're working on all of these other bedtime wind down relaxing pieces, What you may want to do is temporarily do what's called bedtime fading, which is just push their bedtime a little bit later. If you've done the logs, then you'll actually know exactly what time to push this to. It's going to be the time that you see, oh gosh, she's actually falling asleep pretty much at like 10, 15, let's say every day, even though we're starting bedtime at eight. Right. What you don't want to do is say, oh, it's taking them two hours to fall asleep. Let me make bedtime two hours earlier. You actually want to do the opposite. You want to put them in bed a little bit closer to the time that they're really falling asleep now. You're not taking any sleep away from them. What you're actually doing is setting them up for success. Right. You're setting them up for success in actually being able to initiate sleep and taking less time, building their confidence in themselves your own confidence in their sleep abilities, right, which may have have taken a toll over the past however long this has been going on. And what you're also doing, the most important thing that bedtime fading does, and it's not forever, right, It's, it's for a short time until you kind of build that strength and confidence, is you're building their association between their bed and sleep, right? Their bed needs to be considered by their body almost you know subconsciously as a place that oh i just get in here and i I fall asleep easily and this just happens every night and i don't have to do anything right i don't have to try that's what you're trying to build Um, and sometimes what that means is yeah running on a little bit sleep deprived to set them up for success and then every few days if you know falling asleep is a little easier maybe inch it a little earlier, right? A few minutes every every few days till you get to a spot where they're still falling asleep fairly easily, but in a much more stress-free way and staying asleep and waking up feeling refreshed at that at that really consistent wake-up time. You don't want to create a delayed sleep-wake phase. You're doing this all with a pretty set wake-up time. Um, but this, all well, together, th- this is a part of what we call CBTI or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. It's a standard of care for adult insomnia. Um, the AASM calls this behavioral techniques uh, in children, and I think a lot of people think that means sleep hygiene, right? Um, which really is which cool is like right, doing environment, all environment, right? yeah, no screens, right? Which is so important. It is. It's so important. But when you have insomnia right? Sleep hygiene is not really going to help you. Someone, um, someone out of the VA, uh, interestingly associated with Stanford, once told me that, you know, it's like dental hygiene, right? We brush our teeth, we floss, we do all of these preventative measures to prevent a cavity. But once a cavity happens, you're not just going to be told by your dentist to floss a little more. Right, you're going to have a directed, targeted therapy for this issue, and when it's going to resolve, you're going to go back to your dental hygiene. So it's the same with insomnia. We practice sleep hygiene. We practice it every day. But when insomnia sort of rears its head and we need to troubleshoot, then we do some of these maneuvers. We do bedtime fading, right? We also there's also um, a partner to bedtime fading called stimulus control. Um, it's a little harder to do in a young kid, but in an adolescent or definitely an adult. Um it's it's basically if you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't reinitiate sleep, you can't fall back asleep, you get out of bed. You do something else. You don't stay in bed. Because all you're doing by staying in bed is sort of reinforcing the my bed is not for sleep association. Uh it's really hard to do in a little kid. So we, we generally don't, but all of these sort of facets of CBTI, um, they the they really hinge on this idea that Sleep just comes naturally, right? That's that's where that's where we want to get to, that my brain and body associate getting in my bed and my head hitting the pillow with you know, with fast, easy sleep, where I wake up in the morning and I don't even remember what I had to do to fall asleep.
0: So I'm imagining you explaining all of this to your patients, and I'm imagining myself like being you know using this as a tool for patients. And I have a feeling that what you hear a lot, what I would hear a lot is, that's great. And that's, gosh, that sounds like a lot of work and a sleep log for two weeks. And then, right, and then get, you know, telling them to, to go to it's bed the work. Oh, oh, my gosh, that's so much work. I bet that I can manipulate the circadian rhythm myself. And I'm going to give them this natural thing called melatonin that I can just get at, like, Whole Foods. And, oh, my gosh, it works great. It's like magic. I can't live without it out. Parents tell telling me, like, it's a lifesaver. It's changed my life. I spent so much time talking about melatonin. Give me like a little bit of a summary of kind of your, your approach and why it's not necessarily the first thing that you recommend.
1: Yes, yes, vitamin M. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, you know, melatonin, um, for anyone who doesn't know, is uh, it's a neural hormone, right? Our brain makes it. About two to five hours before we fall asleep. Um, and it's our body in the in a picogram quantity, in a very small quantity, to get us ready for sleep. It doesn't make us fall asleep. It simply is our bodies signal that it's dark. Because that's when we make it. We make it in dim light conditions, which is why part of sleep hygiene is, you know, minimizing specifically blue light, because then we'll suppress our own melatonin production. Um, but we we make it. Several hours before falling asleep, it prepares our body for sleep. And by midpoint throughout the night, it pretty much starts to drop off, being fairly low when we wake up in the morning, ready for our day. When we talk about things like delayed sleep wake phase, or circadian rhythm disorders, or jet lag, or shift work disorder, people are shifting back and forth really rapidly. Actually, melatonin is um, indicated for those disorders because you're exactly right. When we are changing the circadian rhythm disorder, then really appropriately timed low doses of melatonin prior to when our body naturally makes it will shift our rhythm. Um, and you'll hear sleep doctors all the time recommending a one-time dose of or a few-time dose melatonin for travel, um, mm-hmm. and especially in the treatment of circadian rhythm disorders. I myself recommend it in those cases. What I see it, or or what's, what's really been happening, especially in the United States where um, you don't need a prescription for melatonin and it's regulated like a food supplement rather than a medication, um, is that it's gotten a lot of really actually very impressive PR. Someone should look into who is marketing melatonin. Um, it's, very good. it's being offered, right, as this like thing that you need for healthy sleep. Um, and that's not totally wrong because your, your body is making it, but in very small quantities. And what's interesting is that at really supra therapeutic quantities, so way above that which our body make, I'm talking like 3, 5, 10, 15, I've seen people on 20 milligrams of melatonin. Um, what you see is that it has less of a circadian rhythm shifting effect and much more of a sedating effect. So it is um, it's a sleep medicine. Right. The same way you think about like benzodiazepines, like clonazepam. Right. The same way you think about Ambien. Right. Those sound scary. Um, They have an indication. Right. But that's what this is. This is a sleeping pill. It's a sleeping pill. Um, are there times that melatonin is, is used, even though it's not indicated for insomnia? Yes, there are cases. And there is some literature showing it being used in children with autism spectrum disorder. Um, there was actually a really nice study that came out earlier this year that followed kids with autism spectrum disorder out for two years on melatonin for insomnia. That's the longest anyone has ever followed a child on melatonin in the literature um and the studies were actually the the findings were actually a little bit reassuring um there were no big shifts seen in pubertal onset although again only two year follow-up um but that's sort of the, the big hot button issue is is does melatonin delay or um sort of uh speed up puberty onset that study was reassuring But in studies where kids with autism spectrum, ADHD, other neurodevelopmental disabilities, there are some studies to show that melatonin can be effective for insomnia. Um, Again, these are cases when we've tried, right, obviously sleep hygiene, but also directed behavioral interventions, right? And then the decision is being made to start this child on a sleeping pill, the choice being made to, you know, use melatonin first. So, you know, there's not to say that this isn't done or that it isn't even the right choice in some cases, It just has to be made thoughtfully, right? The same way that you're going to think about giving Tylenol or uh, amoxicillin, right? Or methylphenidate or any other medication that you're recommending as a pediatrician or that your pediatrician is going to recommend to you, right? You want to have a discussion. Okay, why are we starting it? Right? How long are we going to be on it for? What dose are we going to take? When in the day are we going to take it? What are, what are we looking for when we take it and how are we going to know if, you know, we need to stop it
0: and or is this going to side be- effects, right? And exactly. And, and side and effects side or, effects. or things that we need to worry about because if, exactly. even though it is over the counter, right? we talked about it. Some sometimes can lower seizure threshold, right? That's the big Absolutely. one that I know about. There's other, other things that, right. We want to be watching for that may be a sign that this isn't the right medication for us.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the CDC report that came out again this year is the hot issue this year um, showed um, at least two deaths from melatonin ingestion, one intentional, one unintentional. Um, But um, again, you're you're looking for the the side effect or I guess the goal is sedation, right? So um,
0: you have to be really cautious. So I think that's important to hear because right? So it's not like you're saying no melatonin for, for anybody ever, ever. You're saying it's, it's a medication that sometimes, right, has an indication and sometimes does not. And what I, I see that makes me a little bit nervous and that I, I find really helpful to educate families about is that it's just because you can go get it doesn't mean that you should be getting it and doesn't mean you should be, like, regulating how much your child is on it. Because families that I see especially certain populations of families who may be on stimulant medication. So those kids we know have an additional challenge, right? Of falling asleep and staying asleep. They kind of titrate these doses on their own. So they're on three and then three didn't work and they took six and six didn't work. But sounds like these are humongous dosages, right? Or or amounts of melatonin that are way over what your your body's naturally making. And so we have to do that with caution.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, natural right? Natural doesn't always mean safe um, or better, right? Because there are other sleep, you know, if you're going to think about starting sleep medication, weigh your options. There are other non-natural but far better studied sleep medications that, you know, if your child has an indication for, it
0: are maybe worth discussing with the, the prescriber. Okay, that, that's really helpful. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and just mention one more topic because, as a general pediatrician, I can't talk about sleep without mentioning safe sleep. Yes. And so I, there's you know new guidelines that recently came out from the AEP addressing safe sleep. Um, talk to me a little bit about that and what are, what are some I'll like call out some of that maybe major changes or maybe some some things that we can we can take away for parents to know about safe sleep especially for newborns.
1: Yes, absolutely. It was very exciting. Again, a very hot year for sleep. Everyone's (laughs) talking about, um, you know, honestly, one of the nicest things to see in the guideline was how much didn't change. Right. We had a very clear reinforcement of back to sleep. Right. No soft cushioning, no bed sharing, even with these very popular bed sharing uh, devices that are absolutely everywhere. Right.
0: That's still bed sharing. I just want to make sure that's clear. The co-sleepers, the ones that click into the bed that have the drop down side. Big no, big no for me. Right. So so
1: that was actually very good to see and really kind of disheartening to see some of the curves of how, you know, how much improvement in child infant mortality there was when those guidelines first came out and pretty much how, how much of a plateau um, there was since then. That was a little bit disheartening to see. Um, but in terms of safe sleep. Uh, a lot of those recommendations have stayed the same. And I think it was very important for it to be reinforced um, when a lot of these devices are coming out again, being very highly marketed, um, being very promoted um, by a lot of very like influential people. So I think it's really important to remember back to sleep, nothing in there, nothing soft on their own, till a year um, is still where it's at. One nice change to see though was that, you know, while no bed sharing is promoted. There was also this promotion of of continued room sharing till a year, which was decreased to six months um, on this guideline, which was also very, very nice because again, all the pressure that parents get, right? This, your child needs to be sleeping through the night by six months is a very hot one as well. Um, and when reality is that many, many six-month-olds do not sleep through the night, and also um, parents need to be really careful about what they define sleeping through the night as, which is a certain amount of consecutive hours, not necessarily, you know, the parental night. Um, but this shift in that really after six months, um, a child can don't not doesn't necessarily continue room sharing. Till a year, which is where the guideline had been, I think does allow for some good opportunities um, for promoting independent sleep onset, um, aka sleep training, (laughs) which uh, is the other thing that we didn't talk about, but a lot of people always ask me about, right? And what do I think about sleep training or what's the right age to sleep train? Um, And the reality is, is that sleep training, if you really think about what that phrase means. It's just helping your kiddo learn how to sleep, right? That's all sleep training is. Um, and that starts the moment they're born when you put them down, you know, drowsy, but still a little bit awake. That, that is sleep training. That's sleep training right there. And so what I think this, um, sort of uh, relaxation in the guideline does is does allow parents to promote sleep onset maybe in the child's own space in an own room now and helps them kind of learn to foster that independence um, so that that was a really nice uh shift to see um i think it reflects what people were sort of doing anyway um but but nice to see that it was officially recommended so now we can officially recommend it um that was one of the biggest uh, the biggest shifts, uh, at least from you know an, an insomnia point of view to see, right? Because what happens when we don't promote independent sleep onset um, is we have a kiddo that that does need right either the parent um, or the parental room or a lot of input to fall asleep. Um, and then as the years go by, um, we might be talking about, insomnia and CBTI, right? About, about how to foster those skills and that confidence in themselves. Um, so, uh, an, an important change that they made.
0: That's helpful. I I think we could probably do a whole nother episode just, just on sleep training. Um, I've heard you talk a lot about this. I have been very empowered by, by your, your view on it. Whenever people ask me about sleep training, I always like give them, like I, I qualify my answer with like, here's the, doctor answer and then here's like my mommy answer which unfortunately like they just don't fit because I know what what to recommend but having tried to do it myself I I know that I'm personally not very good at it so I have a lot more questions but I think this is a good stopping point at least for part one of this so I want to thank you so so much this has been so helpful um thank you so much for for taking time and sharing all this amazing sleep knowledge and congrats on what sounds like a a very provocative year in your specialty Um, yeah a, a lot of um a really exciting things coming up my
1: pleasure.
0: Make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for joining us on Kids Talk Talk.